Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, another day, another 450-point swing in the Dow Jones. The Dow opened, I guess, about 200 points higher off the back of stronger overseas markets, Japan being the standout. I think Japan was up about 7% just on the hope that there's going to be more money printing in Japan. You know, that's about the equivalent of 1,000 Dow points, uh, 7% move. But all the overseas markets were stronger And the U.S. market followed that lead. But by the end of the day, the Dow was down about 240 points. A lot of that selling coming in the final hour, which sometimes is is a very eventful or dangerous hour, depending on your perspective. But, you know, we have had these huge swings almost every day for the past uh, several weeks The Dow has been up or down hundreds of points, uh, triple digit gains or losses, obviously a lot of volatility, which generally indicates a change in trend, right? When you have a long term trend and the Dow has been rising for many years and now you get extreme volatility, that's normally something that marks the end of a trend. It's not like a continuation pattern or a stepping stone. It's generally the end of a trend. And I think all of this nervousness and all this volatility is because of the uncertainty or certainty, depending on your perspective, uh, surrounding the Federal Reserve's rate hikes. And the September meeting is just around the corner. 
And there's still a number of people who believe the Fed is going to raise rates in September. But those that think they're not going to raise rates in September think they'll raise them in October. And if they don't raise them in October, they will raise them in December. And either way, September, October, December, that's coming up. But, you know, the first rate hike isn't what's scaring everybody. I mean, if the Fed were to be one and done, which is actually what I think will happen if the Fed actually does raise rates, whether it's in September, October, or December, I believe it will be one and done. And I think they'll probably likely signify that it's one and done, but they won't say it exactly, right? They can't say we're not going to raise rates again. You'll have to read between the lines. But it's not the first rate hike that's got everybody so scared. It's all the rate hikes that they believe are coming down the line, right? This is just the first step in a journey. People are looking for some kind of normalization of interest rates. Even if people don't think the Fed is going to get rates all the way back up to 5%, people are looking for 2 to 3%. And just the first quarter point is the first step on that journey. And markets are forward-looking, right? The markets are looking beyond the first quarter point rate hike, to all the other rate hikes. That's the Fed's big problem. How do you raise rates a little bit without getting a much bigger reaction because the market is going to look forward? In fact, why do you think the dollar has been so strong the past few years? It's because the currency markets are looking ahead. They've been saying, oh, the Fed's going to raise rates, and they are factoring all of those rate hikes into the exchange rate. It's not the first quarter point that they're factoring in. It's all the rate hikes that they assume are going to follow once the Fed gets going, right? Once it takes the first step, they're looking for it to continue on this journey and arrive at this destination of normalization. But that is impossible. I don't know why people can't figure this out because if the Fed raises rates, then the markets tank, the economy goes back into recession. We may even have another financial crisis if the Fed waits long enough. So a wait hike, rate hike is simply the first step in the process of the next rate cut. Rate hikes sow the seeds of rate cuts. In fact, much quicker than people believe. In fact, I think if the Federal Reserve does raise rates, I think the markets will start looking to the next rate cut. I think they've been discounting rate hikes for so long that when the Fed actually starts the hike, now they're going to start anticipating the first cut. And I don't think the first cut is going to be that far away because, again, this bubble is so big, the slightest little pin is going to prick it. The market's not going to have to wait for rates to get to 2 or 3% before it implodes. It'll implode long before then. And then what is the Fed's only ammunition? What is the only arrow in their quiver, really, to fight recession is lowering rates or QE. I mean, that's or two arrows. But if even if the Fed succeeds in getting rates up to a half a percent before the recession starts in earnest, how much stimulus are they going to get with a half point rate cut? <laughs> Not much. So they're going to have to do a massive round of, of quantitative easing to try to stimulate us out of this next recession, which of course is going to be even worse than the last one. Because again, The bust is proportionate to the boom. The hangover is proportionate to how much drugs you took to get high. And this high, this artificial stimulus created boom, the Fed had to shoot us up with a much bigger dose of monetary heroin 
than anything Alan Greenspan did in the aftermath of the bursting of the Nasdaq bubble, right? What Ben Bernanke and now Janet Yellen have done to this economy to artificially stimulate it. We have a lot more drugs in the system. We have a much bigger high. And so the withdrawal is going to be on an order of magnitude greater. And so to combat that, right, they're going to have to come out uh, with a much bigger stimulus than the one that produced uh, this new uh, hangover. So that's why I keep saying that QE4 is going to be bigger than QE3, 2, and 1 all rolled into one. Because the bigger the problem the Fed creates, uh, the bigger uh, the, the medicine or the heroin or you know, the, the, whatever you're going to call it that, to try to cover up the symptoms because the symptoms are now bigger. We have this tolerance that's been built up. So any, any increase in interest rates sets in motion the next cut in interest rates. And the cycle is going to be much shorter because of the enormity of the debt. Right. Normally, it takes a while before higher interest rates to take a toll before it really bites into the economy. But when you've got the amount of debt that we have, right, even a small increase is is enough. And, you know, that's why you've got all these world leaders now and economists. They're all begging the Fed not to raise rates. I mean, it's coming from all over Wall Street, investment banks, IMF. Paul Krugman, you know, don't raise rates. Don't raise rates. Why? I thought the economy was so strong we can handle. No, no, no. Can't risk it. And I think the Fed loves this, right? Just like, you know, the fed up people coming to Jackson Hole. Oh, please don't raise rates, right? Because it, if I'm right about the Fed never having intended to raise rates, this is perfect for the Fed, right? Because this gives them an excuse because they can look like, yeah, we were ready to raise them. We were all set to raise rates, but, you know, everybody begged us not to. And so we decided not to do it because, you know, we figured, okay, we'll err on the side of caution. You know, we're, you know, we're, we're uh, the hawks. You know, we were ready to do it on our own. I mean, if it was up to us, yeah, we'd be raising. But, you know, everybody else is urging us to be a little cautious. And so, you know, we're, we're not going to raise just yet. We're going to wait a little bit, right? That, and so it looks like they were about to do it instead of having to admit that they had no intention of ever raising rates because they know how dangerous it would be. They still want to pretend that this bubble is legitimate recovery and that they can actually, actually raise rates. But, I mean, the market tanked down, you know, from up 200 to down 250. And part of the catalyst was the idea that, oh, maybe the Fed is going to raise rates in September. Why? Because we got this report out this morning at 10 a.m., this JOLTS report, which tracks job openings. And it unexpectedly jumped up to the highest level in years of unfilled positions. And this is, aha, see, Janet Yellen is going to look at all this. You know, there's no more slack in the labor market because there's all these jobs. And, you know, employers are going to be desperately trying to fill these jobs. And this is going to bid up wages. Look, the JOLTS numbers have been good for years and wages haven't gone up. So I don't think this number actually signifies much of anything. I mean, first of all, there are a lot of reasons why jobs are unfilled. One is because the employers can't find people that actually have the skills that they need at a wage that they can agree to. Right. There are a lot of situations where employers would like to hire people if those people that they need exist, but they're not there. And, you know, the Fed's not going to change that with its monetary policy. Also, this is just the raw number of jobs, right? So if we are transitioning to a part-time economy, 
And I think there's plenty of evidence that that is happening. If employers who used to hire full-time workers are now hiring part-time workers instead, obviously they're going to have more job openings, right? Or if you have a full-time worker and you reduce his hours, and now you have a job opening for the guy to replace the hours that you cut back. So this also leads to more job openings. And of course, I think the vast majority of the jobs that are out there are very low-paying jobs, service sector jobs. I mean, in many cases, it's hard to find these low-paid workers because they don't want the jobs. Uh, In many states, it's more lucrative to collect welfare, housing vouchers, food stamps, and all sorts of things than to take a low-paying job. So a lot of these low-paying jobs are never going to get filled. So, you know, I I don't know how much you can gleam out of this, but of course, everybody's on pins and needles about whether or not the Fed's going to raise rates or how soon they're going to do it, because that is the only thing supporting the market. It's not real earnings. It's all the Fed. It's all the cheap money. That's the wave we're surfing. And, you know, if the surf's uh, not going to be up, you know, there's nothing there. And so this news comes out and that might have been the cattle. Now, maybe the market would have sold off anyway, because I still think there's a lot of technical damage done to this market and that the market is likely to go down uh, until the Fed admits that rates aren't going up for whatever reason. And I think if the Fed does raise rates again, I think the stock market is not going to react well because the stock market is going to start to anticipate more rate hikes. And of course, for the past several years, as everybody has known that rates would go up, everybody has said, well, it's not going to hurt the stock market, right? And I always knew that was wrong, right? So the stock market, unlike the foreign exchange markets or the commodities markets or the emerging markets, those markets have fully discounted lots of rate hikes that aren't going to take price. The foreign exchange markets have discounted normalization, not just the first quarter point. They discounted a lot. That means if the Fed actually does raise rates by a quarter point, the dollar could sell off because that's too little too late. The markets have discounted much more than just that. And in fact, if they're going to look so forward, they might start looking forward to the next rate cutting cycle that's obviously going to follow this rate tightening cycle, which could probably be the shortest tightening cycle ever. Because I think if they if they move up once, if the Fed actually goes up to 25 basis points, the odds are it's going back to zero. I think that's a higher probability than that they go up to a half. So it's going to be the shortest tightening cycle yet. And I think the foreign exchange markets will start to anticipate that because they really are looking far into the future. But the stock market hasn't discounted anything. They haven't even really discounted the quarter point. Because we're still relatively close to the highs. Even if we're 10% off the highs, that's nothing compared to where this market should be when the only reason it rose so much was because of the, the cheap monetary policies. And if people think they're coming to an end, even if they're coming to an end slowly, it's still the end of the party. And if the Fed is going to be hiking, don't fight the Fed, right? That's what they always say. Don't fight the Fed. So why start now? Right? You know that the Fed's going to be hiking rates and you bought the stocks because the Fed was easy and now they're going to be tight or tighter than they were, less easy. Well, get out. And that's what's going on. So I think the pressure is going to be on the U.S. stock market until the Fed not only indicates that they're not raising rates anymore. I think they're going to need QE4 for the stock market. I think the market is going to have to know that the Fed is off the tightening cycle that that's over and we've got more easing. That's the only thing that I think is going to float this stock market boat. But of course, if I'm right about that, 
it's going to be much, much better for foreign stocks because you're going to have the added benefit of the foreign exchange rates. Commodity prices are going to go up. And I think the U.S. is going to lose this safe haven appeal. People are going to realize that, wait a minute, you know, if the Fed couldn't raise rates, then when can they ever do it? If they had to do QE4, how do we know they're not going to do QE5? Or how do we know that this could ever end? People are going to start asking the questions and connecting the dots that they should have already asked, that they should have already connected. But for some reason, they did not. You know, one small example of why the Fed can't raise rates and how bad the next recession is going to be if they do is the automobile segment. You know, I've talked a lot about the student loan bubble. And I remember when student loans first topped a trillion. And it wasn't that long ago. And now they're like a trillion three. They're rising rapidly. And this is a huge problem. But I haven't spoke as much, although I have certainly mentioned it, about the auto bubble. But automobile loans, now they are above a trillion dollars. That just happened. The first time ever that we have over a trillion dollars in auto loans. And there is a real bubble, a subprime lending bubble that is very similar to what happened in houses, where lending standards have been dramatically reduced in order to encourage more people to buy something that they really can't afford. In this case, cars rather than uh, houses. And the short-term benefit to the economy is, well, you know, we get a lot more jobs in the automobile sector, the auto manufacturers, the automobile parts, the dealerships, right? Everybody is, you know, making money selling cars to people who really have no money to pay for them because a lot of these cars are sold with nothing down. In fact, in many cases, when you drive off the lot, you actually have money in your pocket. They'll give you cash back. So you actually get money. When you buy the car, right? You walk into the dealership with no money and you drive out with a new car and 500 bucks, right? So you actually got paid to drive that car off the lot. But if you look at the quality of these loans, you've got a huge reduction in credit quality, right? A lot of the loans, a lot of the money is being borrowed by people who in years past wouldn't even qualify for a car loan. Or, you know, maybe they'd have to buy a used car because they, they couldn't borrow enough money to get a new car. But they're, they're, you know, just like the subprime mortgage market where they let people buy houses that in previous cycles would have been shut out of the market because they were too risky. In this auto market, almost nobody is too risky, right? You can fog a mirror. You can qualify to buy a new car. But also look at the length of uh, the term. On these, on these loans. You've got about 30% of these loans are six to seven years. Six to seven years to pay off a car. Now, the average uh, warranty is maybe four years on a new car. Some Sometimes you get as long as five, but I've seen three-year warranties. And of course, the warranties are also voided if you go over the amount of mileage right, for the warranty. Sometimes you get 40000 50000 So if you drive a lot, even if you have a five-year warranty, you know, your warranty could be up in three years if you put enough miles on the car. But here's one of the big problems with these, you know, seven-year auto loans. Now, that's almost like a mortgage, right, on a car. Cars depreciate. And if you're paying off your mortgage over seven years or you're paying off your car loan, you're paying it off more slowly than the car is depreciating. Right, it, the car is losing value faster than your loan is going down. So, in other words, 
your negative equity in that car gets bigger and bigger and bigger the longer you own it. And so what does that mean? That means if you want to buy another car, you can't because you can't get out from under the negative equity in your existing car, right? Like people who are trapped in, in a home that they can't sell because they have no equity. Well, you're trapped in a car and so you can't get a new one. Like a lot of people are getting new cars every three or four years. Well, you know, you got to wait until the end of your your car payment. So what me, what it means for the car companies is that when they sell somebody a car and they got a seven-year financing, that guy is not going to be back in the showroom to look at a new car for at least another seven years. You're really moving forward uh, your sales. But here's another problem. When you own one of these cars and the warranty is up and you still have years of car payments, what happens when the car starts having mechanical trouble and you got to start coming out of pocket? I mean, part of the thing is when you buy a new car and you have those payments, you don't have any maintenance because it's covered by the warranty. And normally, if you have a three-year car loan or something and you pay off your loan and then your warranty is up, okay, now you have maintenance payments, but you don't have car payments. That's the trade-off. You got a used car and you have to fix it yourself, but you don't have any payments now because you own the car. You don't owe the bank any money. But imagine somebody who's got to make a car payment and he has to pay for repairs at the same time. Because a lot of people barely had enough money for the car payment. They're not going to be able to afford these repairs, especially if there is a downturn in the economy and people lose their jobs or they're they, they have less income if they're working on commissions or working on tips and the economy slows and they're not making as much money and now their car is no longer under warranty, something goes wrong. They are going to be massive repossessions of cars where people go into default. My guess is that if we've got a trillion dollars in auto loans, if we went into recession next year, I guess we'd lose at least 100, if not 200 billion dollars in losses uh, on these car loans. Huge. I mean, that is going to exacerbate this next recession in a big way. I mean, not only the hundreds of billions of dollars of losses and what that means, but what it means for the automobile industry, the layoffs in that industry as a result of, you know, this collapse. And these are, you know, better paying jobs. And if you're working in a car dealership, you're doing repairs or you're manufacturing. I mean, these are these are high paying jobs that are going to be lost when this automobile bubble pops. And the Fed has got to know this. Right. I mean, they're not completely oblivious to what's going on, you know, and they know that these loans are like zero percent rates. I mean, low interest rates are the key to these low, low payments. They don't want to take that away. They don't want to prick this bubble. And they don't want to send the economy to recession knowing that you've got something like this automobile bubble uh, because the auto sector has been strong, right? The auto sales have been there. But they're only there because of the lack of lending standards and because they've suckered people, they've pulled people, they scraped the bottom of the barrel to sell cars, this thing is going to come to a horrible end when rates go up and the defaults start coming in. People can't afford to make their car payments. They've lost their job. I mean, and, you know, and walking away from a car is a lot easier than walking away from a mortgage. I mean, you don't need your car, especially if you have a couple of cars, maybe a 
husband and wife both have cars, especially if one person loses their job. I mean, it's easy just not to uh, not to make a car payment. It's a lot you know, less of a hassle. You don't have to find a new place to live. Uh, and of course, the residual value. Imagine what's going to happen if all of a sudden there is a huge uh, you know, default on car loans. And now all of a sudden there's a bunch of cars on the market. What is the value of those cars going to be? Right? You have a lot of cars for sale. Now the value even collapses. So the losses are going to be exacerbated because you're going to have a glut of repossessed vehicles on used car lots which is going to push down the prices that the government is going to get or the lenders are going to get when they have to sell these cars. And so, you know, that's where I'm saying we're going to lose uh, all this money, $100 billion, $200 billion, maybe more. And, of course, maybe this thing goes on. Maybe the auto bubble gets bigger. Maybe by the time it pops, there's $1.2 trillion or $1.3 trillion. I don't know how big this bubble is going to get before it ultimately pops. Just know that it's going to pop eventually. But I don't think the Federal Reserve wants any part of it. I mean, they know it's going to happen probably, but they don't want it happening now. So anything that they can do to delay raising interest rates, and if it can look like, okay, we were about to do it, but all the everybody in the world is begging us not to raise rates, and so we're just not going to do it, you know, they can breathe a sigh of relief because they don't have to admit the real reason they're not doing it because they know that all hell would break loose because they would prick their own bubble. Uh, so again, that's an excuse that buys them some time. But remember, all this bought time comes with a very, very hefty price tag because the bigger this bubble gets, the worse it's going to be. And it already is so big. That's why the Fed has waited so long to raise rates. And if they raise them now, I mean, it's going to be too little too late to, because it's so big, a little teeny rate hike, and we're right back in recession. And now they're cutting rates and doing more QE, and the game is over. Oh, one other thing I, I meant to mention, too, about the automobile sales is the percentage of cars that are actually being leased. And the percentage of cars that are leased versus bought is at an all-time record high. And it's like, why would somebody lease a car? Because leasing is a lousy deal unless you're getting a tax write-off. right? If you're self-employed, and you are writing off your car for business purposes, then a lease makes sense because you can deduct the entire lease payment. But if you buy the car and you have to depreciate it and there's limits on your depreciation, and of course, if you buy a very expensive car, uh, you can't depreciate the whole thing if it's a luxury car. So only for tax purposes does a lease make sense. But for anybody else, anybody who is buying a car for personal use and is not getting a tax deduction, leasing is a very bad financial move because it ends up costing you a lot more in the long run to lease versus buy. But many, many people are making the decision to lease their cars versus buy their cars because when you lease the car, you have a lower payment. And that means a lot of people who are buying cars can't afford one. And so they're leasing instead of buying because they can afford the lease payment, but they can't afford the loan. Even at 0% interest, they still can't afford it and they're making a decision. But the problem with leasing is that your payment never ends. You're a slave. You never own your car. You're renting your car in perpetuity, right? And so you never get to the point where your car payment is over. At least if you buy a car, 
then you own it. You don't have to make the payments. It's your car. It's never your car when you're leasing it. It's always somebody else's car. And so you can never really get ahead. You know, and I've always recommended to people, look, if you can't afford to buy a new car for cash, then don't get a new car. Buy a used car and pay cash. I mean, cars are depreciating assets and you shouldn't buy cars that you can't afford. And in my opinion, if you have to borrow money to buy a car, you can't afford that car. Wait till you can afford it. Wait till you have enough cash. Save your money and then buy a car. Because remember, cars go down in value. Savings normally, when you, comp- when you can compound interest rates, your savings go up. The cars are going down. At some point, you'll have enough money to buy the car that you want. Don't stretch and take out a loan and buy something that you can't afford. You know, in China, right? everyone wants to talk about, oh, the Chinese economy. 90% of the cars purchased in China are bought, bought for cash. The Chinese consumer is paying cash for his car because he can afford it. The Americans are borrowing money to buy cars because they can't afford them. So that's another example of the underlying strength of the Chinese legitimate economy and the weakness, the flaw in the American bubble economy. But everybody wants to talk about all the problems in China and ignore the overwhelming problems in the United States. But again, all these problems are being masked beneath a blanket of cheap money and the fact that nobody believes or everybody believes that the Fed is going to raise rates because they believe our economy is so strong and because they believe that we can continue to borrow and spend money as if we actually had a strong economy, right? It's just a, you know, a field of dreams economy. The world has built it, right? Because they believe in it. They believe that our economy is sound, and that because they believe it's sound, it looks sound because all the money flows into the U.S., and we properly spend it. And it also props up our stock market and our real estate market. But again, the world is confusing a bubble for legitimate recovery. And they've made this mistake before. They made the mistake in the 1990s. They made the mistake with the housing bubble. And they're making the same mistake again. It's amazing how many people refuse to learn from the same mistakes. But I think this next time is going to be the charm, this third time. It's going to be so big, right? The collapse is going to be so big. This bubble is so big. The fallout is going to be so big that this is going to be it. It's going to be three strikes and you're out. And I think people are going to finally get the message and we're not. it's not going to happen again. And this is going to be uh, the final act in this play. And you better be prepared. You better have your ducks in a row. And I know there are people who are looking at, you know, the dollar going up and they're thinking, oh, this is real. You know, no, it's not. This is a bubble. And this bubble is going to burst. And again, this may be the last time this bubble, the last bubble to really get rid of your dollars and to accumulate the currencies that are really going to store their value or retain their value, accumulate gold, accumulate uh, real assets that people are selling because they believe in a myth, because they believe in a bubble. And like all bubbles, this one is going to pop. And like all myths, this one is going to ultimately be exposed exactly for what it is. There's so much factually incorrect information and underreporting by legacy media today. Shouldn't there be truth in media? Well, there is truth in media. Recently, a novel thought is now a reality with truthinmedia.com. Led by award-winning journalist Ben Swan, truthinmedia.com is the source for uninfluenced, reliable, fearless news. 
where journalists pursue real questions, not conspiracies. Make truthandmedia.com your default browser's homepage today and get breaking news and commentary that speaks the truth to power. It's also where you can tune into The Peter Schiff Show every week. Visit truthandmedia.com today. That's truthinmedia.com. Access the Truth and Media RS feed by visiting truthinmedia.com forward slash feed. Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They are all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold. Today, it's more important than ever to understand the value of gold in your portfolio and to keep a close eye on major market developments. Subscribe to my monthly video cast and you'll be the first to hear my latest analysis on gold investing and the currency wars. Visit goldvideocast.com right now to subscribe for free. I call the dot-com bust, then the housing bust, and I advise clients to diversify into foreign equities and hard assets while the rest of Wall Street laughed at me. Now I want to keep you up to date on the next crisis that is brewing. My gold video cast also includes personal interviews I've conducted with other contrarian investors like Jim Rickards and Axel Merck. Gold has gone up 256% since 2003, but it has a lot further to go. Don't miss the rally. You can prosper during this time of currency wars, but only if you stay educated. Get a free subscription to my gold video cast at goldvideocast.com. That's goldvideocast.com.